Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you would turn with me in your copies of the scripture to the book of Exodus this morning. Exodus in a moment will begin reading in chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 10. As a preacher of God's word, my heart is to aim the gospel at the basic desires and deepest loves of the human heart. I'm shooting at you today. I'm shooting at you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And shooting at you with the gospel does not tear you apart. It makes you whole. It reaches to where I cannot reach on my own. Your basic desires and your deepest longings. That means that I cannot preach in such a way that allows for indifference. If you leave this morning and you are indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ and indifferent to his word, there's a problem. Our desire here at this church is to preach the fiery intent of the word so sinners tremble and the hearts of saints no longer creep in dread but quake in wonder. So with that, let us read God's word together. Would you stand with me as I read Exodus Beginning in chapter 1, verse 22, and going through verse 10 in chapter 2. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Father, please provide for me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. So begins the lament and more mournful tone of what is known as Handel's Messiah, composed by George Friedrich Handel, performed on Easter 1742 in Dublin. And Handel began his music with this tension this tension that he expressed through the music that he composed captures the tension that is in every human heart. That is the struggle and conflict that is happening within every single person. A tension that is so intense, it makes us mourn and weep and cry aloud for help. And so... Handel applies Isaiah 41 to the dissension that is growing in the human heart. And what is it that's needed? It's comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. They need a comfort. They need an encouragement, a word that will ease the tension and will help the hurt that the people feel. And this is a comfort that can only come from God. Now, how many other people in our world seek material things to comfort themselves? We have comfort food. We have comfort clothes. We have places of comfort that we go to in order to feel better. What is it that comforts you? Or who is it that comforts you? And do you know God's comfort. But let, let's ask another fundamental question. Why do you need God's comfort? Why do the people in Isaiah's day need comfort? Why do we need comfort now? Why does anyone ever need comfort? It's because people walk in darkness. That's where even Handel's Messiah leads us, leads us to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. There are people who walk about in darkness, and as they walk about in darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. Not only does the Bible say that people walk in darkness or live in darkness, but it also says that they sit in darkness in the very shadow of death. Here it is. Not only are they walking around in darkness, but they're lounging in it. They're sitting in it. They've consigned themselves to the darkness. They've given up to the darkness. The darkness that engulfs every man is a darkness that is there because of sin. It's a darkness that is there because our world is under the curse of sin and death. The darkness is there because we live in a fallen and completely broken world. And it would appear that there is no escaping this darkness, no escaping this darkness. It would appear that darkness is not only all-consuming, but that it is all-powerful, that it binds us so that we are prisoners to this curse of sin and death. Are you, this morning, are you aware of darkness? Do you see the utter darkness that has engulfed the Hebrews here at the end of Exodus chapter 1. Do you want to know what darkness in life looks like? Look no further than Exodus 1.22. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Here is the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who is hell-bent on destroying the male children, the sons of the Hebrews. He's already placed heavy burdens upon them, but that didn't work in slowing down their multiplication. Then he tried to enlist the help of some Hebrew midwives to become agents of death and kill the boys as they were exiting the womb. But that backfired on him as well, so he had to abort that tactic. And now Pharaoh, the seed of the serpent, the enemy of God, this anti-God figure, the one who is intent on destroying life, turns to liquidation and all-out tyranny. Notice how it goes from, you two Hebrew midwives, you are my agents of death, and now... Since that didn't work, since that backfired, since those women feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, Pharaoh sends out a command to all of the Egyptians, every, all of his people, if you see a male Hebrew child, throw him in the river. He enlists all those who are a part of the nation of Egypt. The king of darkness leads his people into greater darkness and he tries to have them join in on the darkness. Now he says to them, if you want to honor me, if you want to obey me, if you want to worship me, you must become a murderer. How aptly Jesus describes whose, who, whose father Pharaoh's, uh, who's Pharaoh's father. Jesus says this in John 8 about Satan. Well, he says this to the, the Pharisees about their father. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Isn't that what we see from Pharaoh? Isn't Pharaoh's father really Satan? All of his actions demonstrate that his father is the devil himself, and he leads people into his murderous ways. Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Where do we see that? Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother. Jesus says that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Where does all deceit, deception come from? It comes from Satan himself. And so the seed of the serpent wants to rid the world of truth, and the seed of the serpent wants to rid the world of the seed of the woman from ever being born, the hope of this one who would crush the head of the serpent, the hope of this one who would bring salvation, the hope of this one who would bring blessing and redemption to the whole world. This is why it had to be every son. Every son has to be cast into the Nile. Leave nothing to chance. Annihilate them all. Wipe them out completely. Every son. Drown. The little Hebrew boys, drown them all, for they don't deserve to live. How horrible and how awful. Perish the thought of taking that helpless child, throwing them in the river, and watching them sink without even the strength to struggle for air. The Nile, that source of water which provided so much life for the Egyptians, that source of water that so many depended upon to preserve them, now became an instrument of death where life would be destroyed. This water that was supposed to give life now became water that was to take life, destroy life, and bring death. Do you want to know what it looks like to live in darkness? 
live in that. Do you think the Hebrews knew darkness? They know it all too well. And perhaps, perhaps we are blind to our own dark days. How many are lulled into the darkness? How many have fallen asleep in the darkness? That we would even need to hear what Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Who does Paul say that to in Ephesians? He says that to the church. Church, you're sleeping. It's like you're in darkness. It's like you're dead. Wake up. Wake up and let Christ shine on you. Let his light come into your life. Do not live in the darkness. Do not walk about in the darkness. Do not sit and lounge in the darkness. Wake up. What a much needed wake up call for the church today. Are you aware of the darkness? And when we come to grips with the darkness, we ask a question, God, how are you going to comfort me in this darkness? How are you, God, ever going to be able to overcome this darkness? It seems to be too strong, too powerful, too massive to do anything about it. God, how are you ever going to let your awesome light shine into this black midnight? This is where Handel's Messiah brings a resolve. The tension is released. Do you remember when that happens? It's when the good news is proclaimed. It's when that triumphant chorus is heralded, For unto us a child is born. Here it is, this child, this one who would dispel the darkness, this one who drives the night away. Birth stories are all over the Bible. Did you know that? Birth stories that are against all odds, birth stories that are unexpected, birth stories that are miraculous and are truly amazing. Consider Isaac, the firstborn of Abraham and Sarah. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars, like the sand on the sea. And so here, Abraham and Sarah, they have this great promise. Our family is going to be huge. It's going to be massive. Just one problem. They don't even have one child. How are we going to have a huge family if we don't even have one descendant? They try to take matters into their own hands. They try to force God's hands. Say, we can figure this out, God, on our own. So Sarah gives her maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham. But it wasn't through that child, was it? God was saying, I'm going to fulfill my promises my way, and I'm going to do it. Not you, any promises that you want to force God's hand on right now? And so God comes to Abraham and promises, it's not going to be this child Ishmael, it's going to be another one who you're going to have. And in fact, God makes them wait so long that they're way old, super old, way past childbearing years. And God says, now's the time. Now's the time that you're going to conceive and have a child. What does Sarah do? She would do what you and I would do. She laughed. She laughed at God. But what happened? She conceived. She bore a son. And they named him Isaac, which means he laughs. He laughs. 
What about Manoah and his wife in the book of Judges? She, like Sarah, was barren. She could not have children. And Manoah and his wife were, were with all of the Israelites under the oppression of the Philistines. The Philistines were harsh taskmasters upon them. And God comes to Manoah's wife and to Manoah and says, I'm going to give you a son and he is going to deliver the people from the Philistines. He's going to be a great, strong man. He's going to be devoted to God. And so was born Samson. Miraculously, by God's power, by God's promise, one who would deliver the Israelites, which is just what he did. What about a woman named Hannah? Hannah, also barren. Every year, she went with her husband to the house of God. And one year, she was pouring out her heart to God. She wasn't able to have children. She says, Lord, if you give me a child, I will devote that child to you. God hears, and God answers, and gives her Samuel. And Samuel means he hears. Right? Notice in all of these accounts, there is a tinge of heartbreak. There is a tinge of difficulty. And we come now to this other birth account in the book of Exodus with Moses. That he is one that would be used of God to bring salvation to the people of God. And what we're going to see in the book of Exodus is that there is one divine agent of salvation, and that is Yahweh. That is God, the Lord, who's going to save his people. But God, in his providence, in in his sovereignty, he uses human agents as well to bring about this deliverance. We've already seen two of them, Shifra and Puah, these two Hebrew midwives. God used them to preserve his people. And so with Moses, now here is this other one, whom God would use to bring about deliverance, salvation, a human instrument used to lead the people out of Egypt. But where was Moses born? He was born in darkness. He was born at a time when the announcement of a child could have brought heartache rather than joy. Think about that proclamation, that pronouncement. It's a boy. You've had a son. At this time, it was not something to proclaim. It was not something to be made known. It was something to be whispered. It was something to be kept quiet. It was something that was whispered was something that was offered up apologetically to the parents. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you've had a little boy. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Could he even do that with a son? He would because this son would be used of God to save Israel. And his life, even the first few months of his life that we have recorded for us in these first 10 verses of Exodus 2, tells us what kind of Savior the Hebrews needed. And he points to the kind of Savior that we all need, that everyone needs. And so as we go through this, what Does Moses' life here at the very beginning teach us about our Savior's life and the Savior that we need, the Savior that comes to rescue us, the Savior that comes to even save us? So if you have your outline there in your bulletin, you can follow along if that's helpful this morning. Number one, we need a Savior whose destiny confronts death. We need a Savior whose destiny confronts death. We begin with the parents. 
a man of the house of Levi. He took for himself a wife from the same tribe. And we see from Exodus 1, verse 2, Levi was the third child of Jacob. He was born to him through Leah. The last thing that we've heard about Levi, so Levi is this tribe that comes from Jacob, to whom this man and his wife are a part of. What do we know about Levi? What was the last thing that we heard about Levi in the Bible? Well, turn over just a few pages in your Bible, backwards to Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. Now, what Jacob is doing here, this is just before he dies, he's blessing all of his sons. He's going through his list of sons, he's blessing them. He's giving them blessings before he dies. And we come to verse 5 of Genesis 49, and here are two brothers, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and, and Levi had done something very treacherous. There was a prince from a town called Shechem, and this prince had defiled their sister Dinah. Simeon and Levi went and they massacred the whole town, killed them because of that. And so it's with that background that then we hear this blessing. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's the blessing that Jacob gave to his son Levi. Doesn't sound like a blessing, does it? That sounds more like a curse. Listen to what Jacob is saying. Jacob is saying, these guys are so bad, I don't even want to be in their council. I want to be separated from them. And so, lest they in their power seek to dominate the rest of the brothers, they're going to be scattered throughout the whole land. I'm going to scatter them and divide them up in Israel. That's the last thing that we hear about Levi in the Bible before we get to now these two people that are from the tribe of Levi. Levi. And here, I think, is what we should be thinking as we read even this first verse. Can anything good come from the tribe of Levi? I mean, Levi's tribe, they're so troubled, they have stuck in violence and corruption. Power hungry. But here in the darkness is again this flicker of light that comes from an unexpected tribe. Oh, the woman conceived and bore a son. And a son whose life is immediately in danger. A son who was immediately threatened with destruction and death, and his birth happened under the command from Pharaoh, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. And so in the land of Egypt, this son was viewed as one who immediately deserved death because of the reign of the wicked and evil king. But in all of the uncertainty that came with his birth came a whisper, something good can come from the tribe of Levi. And oh, that we would take encouragement from this dear brother and sister. If God can and did do something in the tribe of Levi, what can God not do through you and I? What do we know about Levi going forward? They would be made priests before God. They would be those who would be the mediators between God and man. They would be those who serve the Lord in the tabernacle and the, the temple. And so would we see how God can take people who deserved nothing, people who were nobodies, and brings them into his service. That he would even call us 
his church a royal priesthood who had the responsibility of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ as those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do not let your background be what deters you from being used in God's service. God can and will use you. And here now we have this picture of this mother looking upon her child. This is not merely a glance. She is looking at her child with purpose, gazing upon her child. She sees something very interesting. It says she saw that the child was a fine child. What does that mean? She saw a fine child. Whatever it means, it means that what she saw caused her to hide her son for three months. So what did she see? Some would say that she saw the child was beautiful. Wow, that is a good-looking child. That's a beautiful child. That's a handsome child. But if the, mere, if the child was merely cute and pleasing to look at, this is hardly a reason to go to great lengths to hide your child for three months. I mean, let's think about it. What mother doesn't think that her child is beautiful? I mean, we have this saying, right? A face only a mother could love. You could have the ugliest mug on the planet and your mother would think that you're handsome or beautiful. It's the truth. I mean, is she going to look at the child and say, wow, this child is beautiful. I'm going to save him for three months. Man, this child is ugly. In the river he goes. What, what mother would do that? I don't think it's that he was merely beautiful good-looking. Some say that the child was healthy. In those days, children could often be born very sick, die right after childbirth. So some would say maybe it's a healthy child. This is a, a healthy child. But is that what causes a great bond with, between a mother and a child? Man, my child is really healthy. I want that one. In fact, I would almost say the opposite. The child that is struggling, the child that is weak, the child that is sickly, that it's even those that the parents love all the more. My wife and I lost a child at 22 weeks. And there was a question when that child was born, on if that child had Down syndrome. And I'll never forget, one of the nurses came in, and all I can say is bless her heart. But she said, you would not have wanted to have been strapped to that child. I could have smacked that nurse. Because it did not matter if that child had Down syndrome or not. That was my child. So, I don't think that it's a matter of the child being healthy. What is it? What is it that we read here? It says this, even more literally than that he was a fine child. It says that this mother looked upon the child and she saw that the child was good. So she hid him for three months. How great is that? She looked at the child and saw that he was good. Do you see what she saw? We have to look through the lens of the Bible in order to see and understand what this mother saw. We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 to see what this woman saw. So there in Genesis 1, listen to what we read in quick succession. 
I'm going to go through these verses really quick. Genesis 1.4, and God saw that the light was good. Genesis 1.10, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.12, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.18, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.21, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And now we have this mother holding this child, and she looks at her child, and what does she see? She saw that he was good. So what is it that the mother saw? Just as God saw that what he created to be good even very good. So this mother saw that her child was good because he is the sign of a new creation. What is about to unfold before our very eyes is a new creation account. And here is what she sees as good in this new creation. This child blooms out of the anti-creation forces of death and destruction. It's new life. It's new creation. This is what makes this child beautiful in the sight of his parents. This is what makes this child beautiful in the sight of God. And so it's a realization that God is fulfilling all of his promises, even through this small baby that gives the parents the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of, not seen, of things not seen. And so they hide him for three months. This new creation is seen to be promoted as the child then is hid by the parents by faith. Listen to what it says in Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because... They saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They hid him not because they were afraid of Pharaoh or because of what Pharaoh might do to them if he found out that they had hid their son. Their faith was expressed in a greater desire to obey God and a greater desire to love God. They hid him because they feared God. And they hid him because they hoped in God. This hope of a new creation points us to the one in whom this new creation will reach its climax and its culmination and become a reality, the true and final seed of the woman, that one who was born Jesus Christ. And so this plan for a new creation is even being executed through the birth of this little child, Moses. And it's a plan that's executed by God through the faith of his parents. And I would dare say that faith did not waver when they came to the day that they could no longer hide him. After three months, they saw the child was growing. He could no longer be hid. They could not conceal him any longer. And so the mother does something that no doubt would pierce her heart, but no doubt had to be done by faith. What does Moses' mother do? She builds a boat. Someone else made a boat in the Bible, didn't they? And did the same thing that she did. He put pitch on it, made it waterproof. In fact, that's quite literally what it says that Moses' mother does. When it says that she took him a basket made of bulrushes, that word basket is actually the word ark in Genesis 6. So Noah is not the only one who goes into an ark. Moses is put into an ark as well. Why is that significant? Both Noah and Moses become deliverers of the people of God and deliverers and perpetuators of the seed of the woman. Both of them will experience and see the judgment of God but are brought safely through the waters of wrath. Again, both of these, both the account of Noah and now the account of Moses, are framed as new creation accounts. And so as the Nile has come to symbolize death, the mother takes her precious child, places him upon the waters of death. 
Here is the one who is supposed to be the savior of Israel. Here is the one who is supposed to unfold a new creation laid in an ark that looks like a coffin placed upon a watery grave. And so Israel's savior, his destiny is to confront death. When it appears that he is most helpless and weak, here is a baby in an ark who succumbs to the ripples and the movements of the current. As the curse of death swirls around his ark, threatening him and threatening him. Who knows how many corpses of little children lay at the bottom of that Nile just below him. Would he just be another dead baby, another child that drowns in the Nile, another son that is conquered by death, destruction, and darkness? And how, how beautiful it is that we would see this mother take her own child and place him in the ark and lay, them, lay him there in the reeds on the bank of the river. What kind of parent would do that? A loving parent. Because isn't that what God the Father did with his own son? What was the will of God for Jesus Christ? A nice, cushy life. No. A life of suffering. A life whose destiny was to confront death. Here is the Father giving up His own Son. Willingly. Wantingly, because... He had a plan far greater than merely death. He had a plan for life. And so this is what the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ, does as well. It was God's plan for him to confront death head on. It was Jesus who took the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It was Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was there that Jesus' destiny was to confront death and go through death as one who died for our sins so that he might bring us to God. Just as the baby floating on death, so we wonder and ponder, upon, uh, so we wonder and ponder Jesus upon the cross. Will the sting of death be too much for him? Will death be too powerful for him? Will death claim the victory? Will death swallow him up? And if death wins, what hope is there for us? If death wins, there is no hope for us, but death does not win. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you fear death? Are you deathly afraid of death? You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know how you're going to die. You don't know if you have a century, a decade, a year, a day, or a minute longer. You don't know if it will be painful and difficult. You don't know if it will be as easy as going to sleep. You can even believe in the sovereignty of God, that He knows when you will die, and you can still fear death. Why do you fear? I've seen people go to great lengths to take their mind off of death. Keep busy. Work themselves. Do everything that they can to ignore it. Do everything they can to escape it. Do everything they can to try to forget it. 
Is that you? If you were honest with yourself this morning, do you fear death? Do you have that much to lose? Is it a fear and a dread because you don't know what happens next? The Bible says it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. That's what happens next. You before God, just you and him. You can't depend upon anybody else. Doesn't matter who you know. Doesn't matter your church attendance record. Doesn't matter how much money you gave. Doesn't matter how many of hours of service you did. What matters? Do you know the one who confronted death? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Are you depending upon him for your life, for everything that you are? Do you know the one who overcame death and died for your sins? Ecclesiastes 7.2 says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Solomon says, better to go to a funeral than a party. We as Christians are those people who remember death. And there is no fear in death because for the Christian, we know it is not death to die. We know the one who has overcome death and conquered death and given us the victory through death so that we can look death squarely in the face. And we can say, you will not win. You have no claim here. You have nothing that you can take away from me. For the Christian, we know that that which is given to us by our Savior, Jesus Christ, can never be lost even through death. You can lose everything else. You can lose your house. You can lose all of your money. You can lose your job. You can lose whatever it is on earth that you cling to. You can lose your car. You can lose all your friends. You can lose your wife or your husband. You can lose all your kids. And you say, it doesn't matter because I know Jesus Christ. My hope is in Him. He is my Savior. And not even death can take that from me. We're left this morning with one little piece of this scene. There is the ark floating at the edge of the river. And there, at a distance, is Moses' sister, standing, watching. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to this child, this boat? It's interesting, this idea that this young girl is there standing. It's the same word that we read in Exodus 14, 13. When Moses says this to the people of Israel, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. That's what she was doing. She was watching, and she was waiting to see the salvation of the Lord. Are you watching? Are you waiting? Have you seen the salvation of the Lord? And maybe this morning, for you, 
that scene of God's salvation is in your heart. And you would say, I need to be saved from my sins. Maybe you would say, I'm deathly afraid of death. And I need to know Jesus Christ. Today you can put your faith and trust in him. You can repent and turn from your sin. You can call out to him and confess to Jesus. He is the Lord, the one who has risen from the dead. And you can call upon his name. And what happens to the one who calls upon the name of the Lord? They are saved. And so today, if you would call out to him, it's not you might be saved. It's not you hope that you are saved. You will be saved. And so we stand and we see the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that our hearts would be drawn to it, drawn to these truths. We would see the greatness of your word and the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that you gave up your son for us so that we could be made new creations in Jesus Christ. So that we could find life, eternal life, and be forgiven of our sins. Father, if there's someone here this morning who needs life, who needs forgiveness from their sins, who for the first time has seen the light and seen just how much the darkness has engulfed them, Father, I pray that you would save them today. Draw them to yourself. That they might know, know joy inexpressible as they trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.